0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: As I kind of continued along my life interacting with more and more people, the more I kind of interacted with Republicans and as the years went by, the more I did not see that what they were saying represented my viewpoints, my Christian values, my family values, moral values. I just see more of those values being shown better in the policies of the party, of the Democratic Party.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Amanda Weinstein, a professor of economics at the University of Akron, who studies the quality of life in suburban America. She is also the co-host of the podcast, The Suburban Women Problem. Uh, Amanda, welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: Ken, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I got to say your podcast, The Suburban Women Problem, I, I know I'm probably not the, the target demo, <laughs> uh, but I, I love it. <laughs> what gave you the idea?
1: Well, let me just say, we have a lot of fans that are not suburban women. So suburban, urban, rural, man, woman, we will take any listeners that we can get. But so this was actually the uh, thought, uh, the idea of Red, Wine, and Blue. Uh, So Katie Paris's group who really saw a gap in people who are doing outreach specifically to suburban women who maybe needed to feel more empowered. So what we saw recently with uh, Mallory McMorrow, I think, is showing that you know, women out there want to feel empowered and want to feel like someone is speaking to them. And that's really what we do with our podcast.
0: And Mallory McNaro was the the state rep or state senator in Remind Me Where, and just give our our listeners the Nut Michigan. The nutshell. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That (laughs) other. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad. And she had an epic um, rejoinder to some harassment that came her way, right?
1: She did. So she was called a groomer, which was really interesting for me at the time because my husband, Casey, and actually I were also recently called groomers on Twitter and other places. And we were just like, this is ridiculous. It's not believable. Even for people who don't like us, they know it's just not true. But you're kind of like, how do you respond to something so ridiculously untrue? And It was at that moment that we saw this piece of her doing exactly that, responding to something ridiculously untrue. She was accused of being a groomer, and she did it in a fantastic way, saying, I am not a groomer, and let me tell you who I am. She's a Christian. She's a suburban mom, and she did it in such an empowering way of kind of really encouraging other suburban women. This is time for us to stand up and say, this is not okay.
0: Well, that is a bit of your bio as well. And I'd love to get your, your story and your journey of how you wound up where you are today, uh, you know, given that you self-describe as someone who grew up listening to Focus on the Family and uh, very involved in your evangelical church. Um, you experienced some turning points, though, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I grew up um, in the church. We typically went multiple times a week, went to Sunday school, went to main service, actually taught Sunday school for the little kids, Bible study. Um, I grew up very involved in my church. And for me, being very involved in my church also meant um, service. And so it meant doing something for my community, being part of my community in a way to me that served um, God or that higher power. And I grew up in a conservative evangelical family, and as I kind of continued along my life interacting with more and more people, the more I kind of interacted with Republicans, and as the years went by, the more I did not see that what they were saying represented my viewpoints. I honestly don't feel like I have changed that much in my viewpoints. I feel like the Republican Party just does not represent any of my values my Christian values, my family values, moral values, my values as an economist. I just see more of those values being shown better in the policies of the party, of the Democratic Party.
0: Is that cultural drift just something the Republican Party has experienced, or is evangelical Protestantism itself suffering from that same thing? I'm We've explored this a little bit, trying to to link the two, and you've had experience with both.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I do think it is both. So I think it was, I might get this wrong, but it might have been the Reverend Billy Graham, who a long time ago said, basically, in a nutshell, if you see politicians using the church, it's not going to go well. It's not good for the church, and it's not good for government. And I think that is true. It's not good for either. I think When I think of separation of church and state, I think that that is important for our democracy, but I also think it's important for the church. And I think we have seen both the Republican Party and evangelicalism drift in a way that is not good for either of them.
0: Do you still consider yourself an evangelical Christian?
1: I do. Um, So that's kind of an odd place for me to be in where, um, I mean, so part of evangelicalism is, you know, the belief that I, in my heart, decide what I feel and think and believe and who I believe in and what I believe in. And my heart feels like it hasn't really changed that much, but I don't feel the church represents me. So it's kind of a weird place where I was kind of brought up in a place where I still feel like I'm an evangelical. But when I hear a lot of evangelical pastors talk, I don't feel they represent what I believe. So I don't really, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to think about that conflict.
0: (laughs) How did that express itself at the Air Force Academy, because I I know there's been some controversy there about religious indoctrination. Uh, And I, you know, I say this as an Air Force brat and uh, someone who had a a father and a brother both go through the Air Force Academy. There's, you know, there's not a a prejudice here, but there have been, there have been lawsuits, there have been changes of policy because of the things that non-Christians had to endure at the Air Force Academy.
1: That was interesting for me to watch. So while I was there, we had um, a number of pretty well-publicized scandals at the United States Air Force Academy. And um, actually, one of the first that had, that had probably the, one of the biggest impacts on me was actually Martha McSally, who's a Republican, sued the Air Force because at the time they required women to wear abayas. And when she put the suit forward, I remember in my management class, we had to argue the merits of this suit. And I walked in there thinking, this is obvious. Everyone is going to know that this is not right to force women to wear a bias. We've sworn our, we've, you know, raised our hands and we've sworn to, you know, defend the constitution. And that constitution includes religious freedom. Of course, everyone's going to agree with me. This is, you can tell how naive I was. Um, And so when I was sitting there arguing, every male in that room said, of course, we should force women to wear abayas." And I remember being so stunned that the people I was talking to would be so anti-democratic. And to me, it was anti-Christian because as a Christian, I shouldn't be forced to follow someone else's religion. And I was just really taken aback by these Republican men who were arguing so hard to force women in the Air Force to wear these abayas. And sorry, go ahead.
0: For those un, uninitiated, just describe that and uh, and what's required.
1: Yeah. So when at the time when you deployed, women would have to wear the the abaya is kind of the full um, headdress, uh, head covering and long black kind of um, garb that uh, Muslim women choose to wear, hopefully, you know, choose to wear. And I think for any woman that chooses to wear that, that's great. But to force that on a Christian woman who doesn't want to wear that to me was just really kind of shocking that our country would have a policy like that, that our military would have a policy like that. And I think that was for me a place where I really started to see for people who claim to be Republicans, it wasn't very Christian and it wasn't very democratic. And so kind of following on there. So eventually Martha McSally actually won her suit, um, so haha guys at the Air Force Academy, I was right. <laughs> but we went along to have other scandals there with um religion and a lot of senior leadership kind of forcing their version of Christianity on everyone. And to me it felt no different than forcing an abaya on a woman. Right? I wouldn't want, I don't want an abaya forced on me, but I also don't want to force Christianity on, you know, at the time with my Jewish boyfriend. To me that seemed just as repulsive for the exact same reason. And I didn't understand at the time, you know, why so many, again, Christian men were okay with this. And so they've had a little bit of a reckoning with, you know, this isn't okay, right? If we are sitting there and the main goal of our military and our Department of Defense is to support and defend our constitution, our constitution is pretty clear about religious freedom and the separation of church and state.
0: That has achieved something like a truce at the Air Force Academy, mm-hmm. right? Um, partly because of the lawsuits, partly because of leadership changes. Do you hear from either current faculty or uh, or students about the state of affairs these days?
1: Occasionally. So we will occasionally go back and we'll get to, you know, interact with some of the cadets there and see how it's going and hear from, uh, you know, friends that are there and, you know, and I, th- I do, th- I think it's gotten better. Um, So even with the work of my father-in-law at the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, I mean, just having someone there that he's kind of this presence for them of like, man, if we screw this up, he's going to call us and we don't want that phone call. So just knowing that that phone call could happen, I think, prevents quite a bit. And I think it's gotten better, um, but it's still an issue when you have, you know, folks on the family just across the highway in Colorado Springs there. I mean, this is one of their goals is, and they've been pretty clear that one of their goals um, in a lot of these uh, Christian organizations is to infiltrate the military and basically use the military as government paid missionaries.
0: That's fascinating because one of the other things we've really explored uh, in some detail, here is the the aggressive recruitment of, of military folks and veterans by, I'll say, non-religious extremists. You look at the penetration um, from groups like the Oath Keepers and, and Proud Boys of military groups, and there's a reason that the military is is targeted. There's a reason that vets are are targeted for these disinformation campaigns. It's It's because they they carry such cultural currency in our society.
1: They do. And I think especially if you look at transitioning veterans, so uh, some of my research actually looks at how veterans transition into the workforce. And that transition can be hard um, for a number of reasons. But I think it also leaves veterans a little bit vulnerable to finding something that they can belong to. And I think that that belonging can end up being something like the Proud Boys or other organizations, unfortunately.
0: Well, there are certainly alternatives, and we talk about those whenever we get the chance, like like Team Rubicon or, or Team Red, White, and Blue. Um, but, you know, we've, we've come across this dilemma time and again, the veteran looking for that sense of purpose and meaning. And often the first group that gets to them, they get the first crack at what path that veteran is going to be set on.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of veterans, as much as we say we support our veterans, and I do love this culture of at least saying that we support our veterans, no matter how we feel about the military engagement at the time, there's still stigma attached to veterans. Uh, So I did research that showed that veterans actually out-earn non-veterans. And that was actually not the bulk of the research. That was just the intro statement. (laughs) And uh, I often did not get past the intro statement with people because people were shocked when I told them that veterans on average out earned non-veterans. They just had no idea that as much as veterans are struggling, we tend to put that picture of a struggling veteran on all veterans. And it actually, I think, can make veterans struggle more when we picture them all as these broken humans who are capable of less, but actually they're capable of more and they're highly skilled people.
0: Yeah, well, there's definitely that archetype. Uh, So you're an economist now studying the economics of of suburbia and investments in suburbia. And it strikes me as just so fitting that you live in Hudson, Ohio, (laughs) which I think defines suburbia. Before I... um, Before I start picking apart, Hudson, do you want to give (laughs) your version of what it's like living in, I mean, kind of a a Disney? Boy, that's loaded these days, isn't it? I mean, it's a Disney version of suburbia <laughs> with a cupcake shop and, and everything. What's What's Hudson like?
1: <laughs> that's true. I mean, so a lot of people describe Hudson as a present-day Mayberry, and it very much um, a lot of days looks like it. You will see we have in the summertime an ice cream social where my family, we will ride our bikes downtown, and we will go have ice cream with all the neighbors, um, and we have, you know, little get togethers in our downtown. We have little concerts and little picnics together. Um, it is a great place to raise a family where we can walk downtown, enjoy dinner out on a picnic table, see everyone around town, talk. Great schools. Great place to raise a family.
0: So that's the, the rose tinted <laughs> Version, Uh, but it has become something of uh, a ground zero in the culture wars, and not by accident. I mean, there is a reason that you have communities like Hudson, which are, you know, relatively affluent, very educated, the definition of suburbia, and it is these places where the book ban wars are happening. It is these places. Um, where and I, I forgive me, I've got a list here. The the mayor gives his ice shanty speech, <laughs> the Memorial Day um, speech about the origins of that day and and freed slaves honoring deceased Union soldiers is cut off mid-speech. I mean, we'll, we'll get to some of those in detail, but am I reading too much into the seeming coincidence of all of these things happening in an idealized community like Hudson?
1: Not at all. It is happening exactly in Hudson um, for a reason. And that reason is, is we've seen the suburb, we've seen suburbia change. It has gone bluer and bluer, kind of under the radar, I would say, of almost both parties. Um, So Hudson actually, in our last election, we went for Biden when Ohio got redder. We went for Biden Sorry, you might hear my dogs. We're, we're <laughs>
0: yeah, we're, we're all dog people here, so it's, it's good.
1: Xander, that's Xander. He also, he has some strong opinions hey about Hudson. Um, so Hudson actually went for Biden. At a time when Ohio got redder, Hudson got bluer. And this was the first time Hudson had elected or voted to elect a Democratic president in uh someone actually did it. it's been decades and decades it's like 1950s or something the last time it's been no like nobody living in hudson today has actually ever voted for a Democratic president before i think who actually won hudson so this i think was shocking to hudson hudson is historically red um it is not a blue bubble that i am living in here by any means um And the fact that it went for Biden was a big change. And it was something that the people in Hudson, I think, could feel and maybe open their eyes to their town wasn't quite as red as they thought it was. And their town had been slowly changing, probably for decades. And it just people didn't realize it or didn't know it, right? I think a lot of Democrats in Hudson just assumed that they were probably one of the few. Turns out they're not one of the few. There's, you know, every year, there's more and more of us here. This suburb has been getting bluer. Now, it doesn't mean that people who are, you know, Republicans have gone away, right? So they have now seen their town change. And we have people who live here who have connections to Trump and to the Republican Party, all the way up. And Hudson is really their proving ground. What can we do? So the first time I heard critical race theory uttered was by people in Hudson. And so our podcast was one of the first podcasts, I think, to actually do an episode about it and talk about it because we were talking about it in Hudson and we were starting to hear suburbs talk about it. Their strategy is very much to swing these suburbs back and how they do it is by talking about critical race theory, uh, accusing teachers of grooming kids by having inclusive books in schools, book bans. This is all their strategy to win back the suburbs, and a lot of them suburban women.
0: I take some reassurance from your description of the phenomenon because one of the takes that you often hear is the, the far right is ascendant. You are seeing these cultural conflicts because they've, they've found their voice, they've figured out how to weaponize cultural issues, and they're everywhere. But what I am hearing you say is that it is, at the very least, a reaction to a growing wave of Democratic voters in suburbia. Um, and perhaps even more optimistically, the last dying gasp of a power structure that is realizing that if it doesn't pull out all the stops, it gonna, is, is going to sacrifice that social hierarchy that it sat at the top of for, well, generations.
1: I think that's exactly right, that they're thinking, I mean, they had Red Hudson forever. It was just, they took it as red. And so actually when my husband won his seat, my husband is currently in a gerrymandered state house seat for Ohio, gerrymandered for the Republicans. And he took it. And he took it in a year that again, Hudson, that Ohio went redder. And he still took this district. And so that also, he has been a big wake up call for this district, for Hudson, for the surrounding communities, that basically this is not as red as you think. You thought this was bright red, and at one point it was bright red. It's not bright red anymore. This is now a competitive district, and he's now won this district twice, which is just another sign that they thought they did a great job gerrymandering this district, uh, and not so great when the district changes.
0: Let's go ahead and name check Casey because he has been on the show. Some listeners might remember him. And it's not as if his path to victory was right down the middle, moderating his opinions and trying to uh, appeal to just enough of everybody. I mean, Casey has been Casey the whole time, uh, is the co-sponsor of uh, marijuana legalization legislation. I mean, pretty darn progressive for what you're describing as a pretty red area.
1: Uh, That's right. So if you look at the policies when he first won that he talked about, he talked mainly about environmental issues. And he talked about things like our daughter having childhood asthma caused by poor air quality, and how the way he talks about environmental quality is a way that means something to families. It's not just the environment for the sake of the environment. It's the environment for the sake of our kids, for our health, for our communities. He talks about any issue, as progressive as it is, whether it's the environment, whether it's legalizing marijuana, and what it means for everyday Ohioans, for real families. And that, I think, is how he connects to people in his district. And they have really been receptive to this message of, yeah, you know, I can see it. You know, that's not really great when our kids in Northeast Ohio— are having to make emergency room visits and having to go get inhalers. That's not great for this area. That's not great for attracting new families to come raise their families here. When you think about legalizing marijuana, so for that, he talks about his mom. So his mom has MS. And uh, so we're very in tune with the MS community. And for a lot of people suffering from MS, uh, marijuana can really help them. It can help people who suffer from a variety of ailments, Um, You know, things that you might need to see the doctor for, but, you know, maybe things that you don't need to see the the doctor for. And so he has really been a proponent of legalizing marijuana, um, even since he was on city council here in Hudson. And he was very open and honest about it.
0: The reaction, though, among some Hudsonites, especially those on on the fringe right, to uh, your outspokenness, uh, to Casey's outspokenness, has at times been beyond the pale. I mean, the kind of thing that has had to involve the FBI. To the to the extent you're comfortable, can you describe some of that backlash and what you all have had to endure?
1: Yeah, so that's also been a journey for me. I mean, I grew up going to an evangelical church. We had cops that directed traffic for our very large megachurch. So it started even before Casey was an elected official. I would go to synagogue with him and I said, one day I said, man, your police officers aren't doing a very good job directing traffic. And he said, what? They're not directing traffic. They're here for safety. And I just had no idea that's why police were at synagogues. i had only seen them direct traffic. And I it just really made me stop and think that this is a different world I wasn't used to. And so that has been eye-opening for me even before he was an elected official Um, Now that he's an elected official, um, even just being Jewish, being who he is, you know, he's had candidates who basically use this dog whistle of I'm the Christian candidate, and he has received anti-Semitic death threats, um, some credible enough to where um, the FBI said it's credible. Um, So they actually went to the person's house who lived in Missouri. Um, I don't know why the person in Missouri cared that much about a state rep in Ohio, but Anyway, went to Missouri um, and basically said, We know you've been sending these and you need to stop. Um, And so he's basically had that all along um, where we get infrequent death threats and things like that. And you just kind of get used to it, which sounds kind of terrible to say. But then it was actually on a caucus call with the Democrats where we kind of assumed all the elected officials got the same kind of thing Casey did. And Casey came back and talked to me and said they they don't. A lot of them don't. So other elected officials have. Amelia Sykes has gotten some terrible threats. Um, but for the most part, they're directed at minorities, and they're directed for him because he's Jewish. And that has also been eye-opening to see that the kind of pushback he gets is not because of his ideas so much or what he says. It's because he's a Jewish man saying them. And that is that's hard to take. I mean, we're, we're in the synagogue, you know, every week, our kids identify as Jewish and also Christian, um, depending on how you ask them. Sometimes they say, I'm both Jesus and Jewish. Um, and so they will be perceived in the world as Jewish people. And so it is hard as a mother to see how some people in the world react to him just because he's Jewish, knowing that they react to my children the same way which is an awful feeling to think that anyone would treat your child differently just because of their religion. And so that's hard. And so it went as far as um, we actually had a group of protesters, about 30 or 40 protesters, show up to our house one day. Snowy, feet of snow out. I happened to look out front and start seeing a bunch of flags, don't tread on me flags, kneel before the cross flags, American flags. And I just kind of thought, man, this is interesting. I wonder where they're going. And then we we kept looking and said, oh, my gosh, they're coming to our house, (laughs) which was strange because in all of Ohio, I mean, I think Amy Acton, uh, you know, who has received a lot of death threats, also Jewish, um, while she was doing Department of Health stuff for Ohio. I know DeWine gets it at his house, but we have Amy Acton, Governor DeWine, and then Casey Weinstein, a state representative. It was strange seeing that our house was the one that they came and protested. And our neighbor went out and talked to them. So the police recommended we didn't talk to them. And our neighbor just kind of said, well, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we just want him to do better. And she's like, that's great. How can you do better? And they said, I don't know. Let me get my leader. And it was just ridiculous. We were like, you don't even know why you're here. Like the first rule of a protest, my, uh, my, co-hosts on the pod on our podcast loves to say like the first rule of a protest is have an ask right <laughs> what do you want like you should have an ask yeah. what do you they didn't have an ask they just simply didn't like him how do you have a conversation with people like that and that is that gets frustrating for me i one thing that i do love about my husband being a politician is we love talking policy we can talk policy all day, any day, I think it's interesting. I'm an economist, right? I love talking policy. I love talking policy with anyone, right, left, middle, center, whatever. But how do I talk policy with someone like that? They don't have a policy they want. They just don't like him because he's Jewish. And and that's where a lot of our conversation has gotten in politics, and I really struggle with that.
2: History is complicated,
0: And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. What do you make as an evangelical, as an Air Force vet, as a patriot with Jewish kids of the conflation of? patriotism with this aggressive Christian evangelization, and you mentioned the American flag side by side with the kneel before the, the cross flags. Has that always been there? It's just more in our faces now, or or is, is something happening?
1: So it's been there since just kind of bubbling up, even since when I was growing up in an evangelical church of um, so Kristen Dume has a great book on this, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, that we kind of had this conversation when Donald Trump was elected. Hey, they're voting against their own interests as Christians. And her book basically says, you haven't been watching, watching Christianity if you think they're voting against their interests. Because Christianity, evangelical Christianity, has been aligned with this very masculine, aggressive kind of way of being a Christian, identifying as, you know, the war fighter. And this has been the direction evangelical Christianity has been heading for a while. He's just a stop on this path that they're on. This is absolutely where it has been heading for a while. And I, as a Christian, as a veteran, as someone who swore to defend this con- our constitution, to defend our nation. I hate it. I hate that those two things have come together like that. I believe very strongly in this country and feel very proud to have served my country. And my country stands for religious freedoms. It stands for the separation of church and state. It stands for a whole lot of really beautiful things. and I'm proud of those things. I'm proud to be a Christian. And I also think my faith rests in that separation, and it always has, so seeing those two things come together for me takes two things that I love very much, um, my faith and my country. and I feel like it just rips it away from me almost.
0: Well, let's talk about the the manifestations of that and how they are um, how they are appearing in Hudson. Let's begin with book bands. Give us the the short version of. The attempt to well, I guess there have been a couple instances, right? The attempt to limit what high school creative writing classrooms are doing, and then the the intrusion into library catalogs,
1: yeah. so this one, um, man, so it's really interesting. So I'll start with, I'm a mom. I know teachers aren't perfect. Sometimes I have an issue. I have texted teachers before. I've emailed teachers before. I've talked with teachers face-to-face to to get that issue solved, whatever that issue was. This is, I think, how most parents solve an issue they have with their teacher, with their school, with whatever's going on. So what we saw happen when someone had an issue with a creative writing class was not that. What we saw was suddenly the now uh, former mayor of Hudson went to a board of education meeting with a speech prepared of this creating writing prompts book and how this creating writing prompts book is, you know, grooming kids and it's, you know, pornography essentially and accuses the teacher of terrible things, accuses the whole school board of the terrible things. So then what happens from there, they get death threats. Death threats that were serious enough where we had to close our administrative buildings because they were credible enough. And he didn't have a kid in that class, right? It was someone who happened to find out about this book. No one had an issue with the class. No one had an issue with that book. It was just something, to me, I think that they could score political points on, right? Because if they really had an issue with it, they would have gone to the teacher. They didn't. They went to the mayor to make a speech. To then get videos, to then send to Josh Mandel, and so we had fun meeting with Josh Mandel about this. And we had to deal with death threats at our schools for our school boards, and the class had got pulled um, because it was a university credit uh, college credit class, and we lost it. So our high school kids, you know, my kids, if they go to high school there one day, they do not have that class anymore because of this stunt that he pulled. And it was absolutely a stunt. Now, I have no problem with any parent having a conversation who is concerned about something going on in their class. We should be able to have these conversations with real concerned parents. He was not a real concerned parents. And to me, this is a lot of trying to score political points. And the cost is on the education of our children.
0: Was this the same... Mayor whose speech at a, a city council meeting went viral as he claimed that um, ice fishing shanties, if left unregulated, would naturally lead to prostitution. <laughs> that's,
1: that's right. Same same oh, mayor for the this nice video, right? It's very dramatic where he says, "You know what, ice shanties are going to lead to?" It's like a dramatic pause prostitution. And everyone in there is like, (laughs) did not think that was the word that was coming next. Uh, And he believed it. So I've had people like, he doesn't laugh, right? This is not a joke to him. This was something that he really believed was a, a legitimate concern about ice fishing in Hudson, that it could lead to prostitution. Like, this is... And I don't, I don't understand this mindset, but this is a little bit the mindset of you make these incredibly crazy leaps from ice shanties to prostitutions, from a creative writing class to grooming children and these leaps. So here he wasn't accusing of any particular ice fishing club of prostitution, but when you're accusing a person of grooming children who is, you know, a teacher in our community who, you know, these teachers don't get paid all that well. And now on top of that, they have to deal with you accusing them of being grooming. And in addition, if you really are concerned with children being groomed, right, which is terrible, accusing everyone in this country of grooming children who doesn't agree with you is not the way we catch someone who actually is doing that. In fact, it only makes it harder and it only muddies the water more. So it only makes it easier for people who would want to groom children. So you just see these ridiculous claims linking mundane books to grooming children.
0: It seems to me more evidence uh, in support of of your theory that, that this is a last dying gasp of a of a culture that fears its own extinction the the puritanical nature of their reactions to social issues i mean i'm i'm thinking of the the social conditions that led to the witch trials in in Salem, right? You have this massive overreaction of a society that believes its existence is is under threat by forces it can't control.
1: I mean, I think that's right. It's their last dying breath. And I do think that there are... They are able to, with these claims, get some parents legitimately concerned, right? That, and I don't think anyone is legitimately concerned that any that are that this teacher in Hudson was grooming children. I don't think anybody thinks that. However, with the number of books they're now trying to ban, um, so the biggest one that they love to hammer on is um, "Gender Queer" because it has graphic content in there, um, and this is in a high school class or a high school library, I should say, and this is a book that they just will not let go of. The graphic content, which they swear is very offensive. They love to share it everywhere, which I find interesting because if you really think it's that offensive, why do you keep showing everybody this offensive thing? Um, Which think I don't think you really think it's that offensive. But I do think you can take a lot of things out of context and especially not only if it's out of context, out of a book, but if it's um, from a culture and from something that you don't understand right? So I am personally not genderqueer, as far as I know, my kids are not. And this book is written for someone who is genderqueer, who is struggling with their identity um, and these issues. And it's also for their parents to understand how to have that conversation with their children. And if you aren't genderqueer and your kid isn't, right, then you struggle to understand the value of this book and the value for any book that represents LGBTQ people in a library in a high school. And this is a conversation that is, I think, hard to have when you just have the other side yelling groomers and not willing to actually have the conversation with someone who says this book mattered to me. This book was important for me to see myself reflected in that book because we know kids like this also have higher rates of suicide, higher rates of bullying. They're more likely actually to be murdered. And we don't want to quiet those kids and quiet the issues they're going through. We want them to be able to speak with their parents, even if those issues are uncomfortable. And really what I see the other side doing is they want to have none of these tough conversations whether it's about race, whether it's about sexual identity, whether it's about sex, right? They want none of the conversations to happen and just to kind of put their fingers in their ears, screaming la, 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 and they think it'll all go away. But, you know, I was in the military. Ken, you were in the military. We had Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We got rid of it because it's not a very effective way to go about your business, right? Like the Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military, I just remember being like, This is crazy when you kind of know someone is or you don't know, and you can talk about, like I can talk about dating Casey, but they can't talk about their life because they're not allowed to. It makes for a really weird work environment. This don't ask, don't tell doesn't work. It didn't work in the military, and it's not going to work in our schools and our society, which is where they're trying to push us to.
0: It is inarguably bad policy, and I love your comparison to don't ask. Don't tell. It's hurtful policy. Um, But is it good politics? That's my big concern going into 2022. Have they hit on something that is working for them politically, even though you and I both see the enormous damage it it is doing at a human level?
1: I mean, so that, I think, is a really interesting question, because what you typically saw in every election—so in economics, we have this median voter kind of theory, right? So the primaries, you're more right or you're more left, and then what happens in the general election is you swing towards the middle, and you kind of see both candidates tended to do this, and whoever can kind of pull from the middle the most is who wins. And this was tended to be the strategy for politics, right? You move to the middle, see if you can get the middle— But what Donald Trump did is show that's not the only way to win. He did not try and get the middle, I don't think. What he did is said, you know what, I just need my base to show up. You know how I get my base to show up is I just super far right, do these dog whistles, do these, you know, whatever these, you know, things are that can really rile them up and make them angry. And that's how I win. And he did win, right? So, He didn't have to win the entire population. He won, you know, the Electoral College. And he won by rallying the base, not by trying to get the median voter. And what I see Democrats doing is they're still really trying to get that median voter. And I wonder if we're playing two different games with Republicans really getting their base to show up, not worrying about the median voter, and Democrats not rallying their base, worrying a lot about that median voter.
0: How do you see that game, as you put it, playing out in in Hudson, where you have such a vocal um, Republican base, I mean, vocal to the point where they're protesting in front of your house without knowing what the ask is, they're turning out even as – Hudson more generally is is turning bluer but those blue voters aren't as as animated. What's your prediction for 22 if we can look to Hudson as the exemplar for suburbia nationwide?
1: So Hudson is interesting cuz you have some very far right very loud voices. But they're not the majority. So if you look at our recent school board election and our recent library election, man, did they not win? It wasn't close. And so I think you see the voters in Hudson don't like this kind of, so the, you know, Republicans love to accuse Democrats of the culture wars, right? And We kind of let them a lot. We kind of let them say, yeah, we do the culture wars. And every time I hear that, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, to me, the Democratic Party is a party that wanted to stop the culture wars. If you look at Jim Crow era laws, right, Democrats, and you think about the whole civil rights movement is trying to end and stop that culture war of, you know, attacking minorities or attacking whoever it is. And I think in Hudson, Republicans are going to have a tough time if they want to continue outlandish book bans calling, you know, everyone a groomer. I don't think it's going to work very well in Hudson. Now, broader than Hudson, I think you may have issues with rallying the base. When you look at what the base of the Democratic Party wants, right, when you start to talk about what are your main issues, most people don't start talking about the potholes in their roads, right? Doesn't mean they shouldn't be filled. Doesn't mean we don't want roads. It's just not What motivates us, right? And we've seen an important infrastructure bill, but we see the base asking for things like voting rights and paid leave and universal pre-K, and we don't see those policies. And so I worry more that we don't rally our base. And if we think about what our base wants, policies that some call very progressive, universal pre-K, right, might be one of those policies, I don't see that policy as very progressive. Not that very progressive people don't want it. They do want it. But I see it as fiscally conservative. We have a lot of economic research that shows for every dollar you spend on quality childcare, you end up saving $7 long run. So to me, I don't see how any fiscal conservative can say they're not for universal pre-K. And so we just need to package a lot of the policies that Democrats want, a lot of the policies that the base wants, things like universal pre-K, right, package it in a way that shows it's for everyone, it's for the median voter. I think universal pre-K is another interesting one where we might think this policy is for, I don't know, you know, urban families, but it's for any family with children. And actually, if you look at the research on universal pre-K, it actually has the largest positive impact on rural areas, on areas that really lack access to child care. And we just don't often talk about policies that way. And so I really think Dems, they need to do more, right? And they need to do more that helps everyday families. If it's the child tax credit, universal pre-K, they need to do more Hudson right being in a in a community as wealthy as we are and where we are they're okay with the infrastructure package i think largely but i think for the base of the democratic party and in, and for the democratic party in general we need to see more policies that help everyday families
0: well i think that's a great place to wrap because that is exactly the prescription that uh, the the party needs looking at this oncoming election with all of the challenges it presents off year, inflation is high, but with the right message, I, I think it's it's salvageable. I think that's right, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the pod is the Suburban Women Problem Podcast. Uh, recommend everyone check it out. Um, and uh, Amanda, we'd love to have you back.
1: Ken, thanks for having me. This was so fun.
0: Thanks again to Amanda for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at Prof Weinstein. And make sure to check out her podcast, The Suburban Women Problem. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteFence. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.
1: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.